Hello, everyone, and welcome to Paranormal Roundtable. I'm your host, Josh Turner, also known as Wolf. With me today, we have a guest, but as always, Anthony's with me. Um, he'll be with me for a while until he gets sleepy and then ducks out, like always. Oh, man, I, I think I feel it coming on right now. Oh, my gosh. Well, can you make it through the beginning, at least, for the intro? So, so what we got going on today, um, we have a really important guest, uh, somebody that I've been wanting to talk to for a long time. I'm excited about this because uh, it's something that I've been studying for years. Before we get into that, Paranormal Roundtable, uh, Josh Turner at PRTPodcast.com. That's my email address. And, of course, PRTPodcast.com is the, is the uh, website. So you can go and you can do whatever you want. Check out the art, merchandise. You can purchase that. People are asking about that a lot. And then we have a bunch of back shows. We have groups, Paranormal Roundtable, on uh, on Facebook. I think as of today, we just hit 7.6 thousand people. So that that's growing uh, pretty pretty quickly. We got Paranormal Lounge, which belongs to Nelly. Paranormal Encounters, which is Mushu, which is my part-time co-host. And then we have uh, several, there's three or four others that, that I'm an admin of, and I'm in about 150 groups and no, no, no bull. So I'm, uh, I'm all over the place and always looking for stories, always looking for, for guests and, and interesting people. So if you think you're an interesting person and you want to be a, a guest on the show, hit me up and uh, maybe we can, we can talk. And so what we got going on today, we're going to talk about the Bible and we're going to talk about books that aren't in the Bible. We're going to talk about a lot of things you probably never heard of. And uh, so Paul Anthony Wallace is my guest. He's been on before, um, but he was on the live stream. So if you're if you're not paying attention to the live stream, and that's a YouTube exclusive, and you're you're, you're listening to us through Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, or whatever for the podcast, uh, that's great. But you're you're missing out because there's a lot of content that comes on on the uh, live stream that comes out on Tuesdays. We do that about 7.45 to 8 o'clock. We get started. We go two or three hours. And so we got a lot of people that go and, and listen on, on the live stream, but we're, you know, not nearly as large of an audience as we get for the podcast. So if you guys, though, would like to go and, and, and get a little extra content, that's where you're going to get it, right there. So without further ado, I'd like to get started with my guest because we have a lot to talk about. Uh, Paul, are you there? G'day, Josh. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. You're in Australia, right? Certainly am. New South Wales, Australia, just outside the Australian Capital Territory. Yep. Yeah, outside the capital of Canberra, right? That's right. Yeah. And so uh, it's weird, too, because and, and I remember, and we were talking about the Mandela effect briefly. Um, we, you know, I think when you came on, I was like, we touched on all kinds of different subjects. And I think later in that episode, it was either with, when you left or, you know, maybe it was you. It was, I know Tony Merkel came on afterwards, but the, the Mandela effect, I remember the capital being Sydney. And I don't know if that's a common <laughs> mistake people make, but I remember. It's a common mistake. People all around the world seem to think Sydney is the capital of Australia. It's so awkward. Uh, iconic, of course, because it has the Sydney Opera House, it's got the Sydney Harbour Bridge, but uh, no, it has never been the capital of Australia. And I remember years ago when I moved to Australia telling people, oh, I'm moving to Canberra, a lot of my English friends said, oh, that's um, that's just outside London, right? And they were a little <laughs> bit unclear that it was the capital of a country on the other side of the world. But that's how it is. There was an almighty fight between Sydney and Melbourne as to who would be capital, and it ended up being neither of them ever. So it's always been Canberra. Yeah, and 
the, the, the thing that I know the, most about Sydney is the Sydney funnel web. <laughs> That's <laughs> and the spider because I have a ter- I'm terrified of them and they're yeah. awful. They're absolutely. Oh, we've got ungodly. a lot of dangerous animals here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, plenty, plenty to keep you entertained. Yep, a lot of the deadly snakes, uh, spiders, yeah. and the oceans are full jellyfish, of great whites. Jellyfish, box jellyfish, box jellyfish, sharks, crocs, crocodiles. That's right. We've, we've got a lot. <laughs> Yeah, they're everywhere. Well, so so we could go on and on about the animals, but here we're we're going to talk some <laughs> about the Bible theology and and your work. You've you've uh, you've been doing uh, a lot of work for a lot of years. You want to get started and give us a brief bio? Sure. My background is in Christian ministry. For thirty three years, I worked as a church doctor, uh, which is essentially a troubleshooter going into churches that need assistance. I was involved in church planting involved in planting half a dozen brand new churches. I worked as a theological educator, training pastors, particularly in the history of Christian thought and in hermeneutics. And that's the principles of interpreting ancient texts, which is really the the linchpin of what we're going to be talking about today. So I was teaching that to pastors, and I worked as an archdeacon in the Anglican Church in Australia, which sort of won down from a bishop. So that kept me occupied for a good 33 years. But as I say, it was my work in uh, hermeneutics that got me into the field that is now my specialism, and that's paleocontact. Paleocontact is the theory that in our deep past, our ancestors had contact with other civilizations, extraterrestrial civilizations. And so people are often surprised. People have been writing in the field of paleocontact for a long time. But it's not very often that a senior churchman weighs in and starts putting out books saying, hey, guys, the Bible is actually full of paleo contact if we visit some translation questions. And that was my way in. Yeah, and, and this was with the uh, the Anglican Church? That's right. Well, I've worked in uh, independent, non-aligned, Pentecostal, evangelical, charismatic churches for about half of my 33 years in ministry, and the other half has been with the Anglican Church, which is the, the Church of England overseas, essentially. Yeah. And so one, one of the things that, that we had talked about when you came on the, the live stream, which was interesting to me, um, of course, a lot of people are going to be taken aback by that. And the, the, the crux of what I was telling people and was trying to make them understand was that we weren't trying to take away from the word of God. We weren't trying to take away from anything. We were trying to, to get closer to the truth. And my point was that the Bible, in particular, the Old Testament was mistranslated. It was not correct. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I really value what I see is the gold of the Reformed tradition within Christianity, which is to always be able to go back to a text and ask, have I read that right? And the great thing about the huge array of manuscript copies we have of the Old Testament, the Hebrew canon, and of the New Testament, is we can continually go back and revisit questions of translation. So my agenda is in no way to debunk the Bible. It is always to understand the Bible, understand the texts, get beyond the translations we're all familiar with, go back to the original texts and ask, Have we translated that right? Because my belief is that the Bible in in those original texts curate the most interesting story 
about human origins and our place in the cosmos, but we've missed it often because the translations haven't done justice to the original vocabulary. Yeah, and a big part of that comes from the discovery of of certain books that that are were not they're not canon, but they were found in, in different places. One being the Dead Sea Scrolls, the other one being the uh, the books that were found in the Nagamati Desert, which you have done a lot of research on. Um, well, one of the interesting things about those finds, uh, both just after the war, was that we found a whole trove of documents from the very beginning of Christianity, which suddenly gave us a picture of the kaleidoscope of theologies that made up Christianity in the very beginning. And some of these texts had been buried by religious communities to protect them, because as orthodoxy was narrowing down, and as it was getting tied to the feudal order of the empire, all these rather interesting texts around the edges were getting pushed out, anathematized, the writers were being excommunicated, and they literally thought, if we don't bury these texts, they're all going to be burned, and no one will know the full breadth of Christianity unless we preserve it for the future. So we found some really interesting texts like that, which are the, the Gnostic texts, but we also found a lot of texts that were canonical. Uh, from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew canon. And what was exciting about those finds is that for the first time we could compare those with the texts and manuscripts we'd used for translation in the past. And what it showed was the fidelity with which those texts had been preserved from century to century to century was incredibly precise. So when people talk about the Bible changing and getting lost in translation, well, you can cut through that because we can very confidently go back to these texts and say, yes, but we know what the original texts were. The question now is, how do we translate them? And we can have a fresh go in the 21st century at really getting to the bottom of what these writers were talking about. Yeah, and some of, some of the things that we that we discussed, uh, Paul, off air was that I had had discussions with people about the nature of, of the world we live in, heaven, hell, um, you know, where you go when you die, things like that. And there was, like I said, that there was someone who had posted in a group that I'm in um, about hell. And I said, hell literally was a dumping ground in Jerusalem. That, And when Jesus was referring to that, he was actually referring to that and 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 they that's where they had refuse and they actually burned it and so there were people that that just went crazy i mean they were just like absolutely angry that i said that and i was trying to tell them that's the literal uh translation because yeah. you know according to the uh the talmud i think it's i think it's in the talmud and they it says that there are three gates to hell one is in the ocean um one is in the desert and then one is in jerusalem um, I believed in the, the one in Jerusalem that they were referring to was actually the dumping ground. Um, and of course there's the Torah and then the Kabbalah. And then, you know, and then the, uh, one of the things that was found that was very interesting to me in the Nag Hammadi library was the Gnostic apocalypse of Peter. And that, that's interesting because it actually kind of coincides with the, the Islamic belief that Jesus, and it's just, it's just a book, you know, 
Um, and we don't really know exactly the authors of, of each one of these. I, I don't believe, do we? No, that's right. No, but but the apocalypse, apocalypse of Peter and the and the Gnostic apocalypse of Peter actually talks about there being a person that was sub, there was a substitute for Christ, and that has actually been taken as canon in the Quran, uh, if I'm correct. And and so yes, that's right. Yeah. Well, it 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 can get confusing because. Among this kaleidoscope of literature from the beginning of Christianity, you've got a kaleidoscope of types of literature. So we're very familiar with the canonical four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we have an idea of how we're supposed to read them, that essentially we feel we're reading history, but history that's full of story. And um, although, you know, it's worth going back and just trying to work out where does it go from history to story, because it's not always crystal clear. But that's essentially how we read those. But if you try and read something like um, the Gospel of Thomas in the same way, then you realize, oh, this, this, this isn't quite the same. This isn't the same kind of book. It's actually not making any historical claims. So I need to read this differently. It's essentially a list of, of sayings, almost Koan-like sayings that leave everyone absolutely puzzled and thinking, what did he just say? What does that mean? And so we've got a wider range of literature in the in the early Christian canon with a small c before these books got buried. And so it can be tricky comparing one against the other when, you know, gospel like Luke makes some pretty clear claims to being history, and then you've got other documents when you get to the Gnostics, that are something completely different and are trying to wrap your mind around concepts that may not be part of the mainstream story of something like the Gospel of Luke. So one of the things I taught pastors in hermeneutics is one of the first questions you have to ask is, what kind of literature is this that I'm reading? And most Bible readers are familiar with asking that question. You know, you don't read a proverb in the same way that you would read an epistle from Paul, for instance. What is is this a poem? Is this uh, written from a human perspective about God, or is this a prophecy from God? We always stop and ask, what kind of literature is it? And then the other question, that's called uh, form criticism, or form analysis, I prefer to call it. And then the next thing you teach for a preacher is to do source analysis. Where did this text come from? And how is it different to the original version? And as soon as you start asking questions like that about texts in the Bible, a whole other layer of story begins to emerge. And you begin to piece together the story of how and why the Bible formed, what the agendas were that brought the different books into the canon at different times. And once you've done those two things, it really does alter how you see the Bible because you you get beyond that it all came down in a bubble way of thinking, which is almost like a Quranic way of thinking where every word gets dictated. And you begin to realize, oh, no, there was a process by which um, the people of Israel gathered together their sacred writings because it is the scriptures in the plural, gathered them together, and formed them into a canon. And then the third question, which is the really vital one, is what do the words mean? 
If you want to know what the text is actually about, you have to stop at some point and say, yes, but what do those words mean? Those Hebrew words, those Aramaic words, those Greek words. And that's often where we begin to challenge some of our assumptions. You mentioned, Josh, people were upset because what you had to say about hell was not what they'd been taught at church. And I think a lot of people are very familiar with the doctrines of heaven and hell, heaven for the righteous, heaven for those who are following Jesus, and hell for everybody else. People learn that through church. Uh, They don't get it from the gospel. Uh, And when you challenge someone and say, look, I know that's what you've been taught, but you show me that in the gospel, people can get even more upset when they realize they can't do it. And there was a very, very famous um, pastor and theologian in the UK, John Stott. Uh, Now, you know, the Reformed Protestant churches, evangelical churches, we don't have popes, uh, but we do have revered Bible scholars, and John Stott was one of those. And he was somebody who, after decades and decades of absolutely flawless, immaculate, pristine biblical teaching, horrified everybody when he said, And now, guys, we need to look at the doctrine of hell because that needs to go under the microscope of Scripture. And if we do that, we'll realize a lot of what we believed hasn't come from the Gospels at all. Now, even people who'd followed John Stott for decades, a lot of people at that point said, I'm never listening to that man again. Instead of saying, oh, my goodness, there must be something I have not spotted if he's saying that. A lot of people just couldn't journey with him back to the scriptures and do the reformed question of asking, have I read that right? But that, I think, is the goal that enables us to make fresh discoveries and get fresh insights from our ancient texts. And one of the things that we covered when you were on the show, uh, you know, when you did the, the live stream with me, was that the Zoroastrians, they predated Christianity. And Christianity, of course, predated Islam. But the Zoroastrians, actually, the three wise men were Zoroastrians, and they had followed an astrological calendar to find the birth of of the Savior, which was Christ. Um, I've mentioned that to people, and they've lost their minds. No, they were Christians. And I'm like, they weren't Christians because Christians didn't exist yet. Yes, that's right. Being the precursor to these religions— a monotheistic religion. The, the the Zoroastrians actually that's where the heaven and hell, I think, that's where it started. Um, because it was like if you were bad, okay, you were thrown into the, the a pit of fire and to be purified. Now it wasn't like an eternal thing. You just you, until you were cleansed, because fire was a purifier, and you were and, and even even the word purifier, it's just like you know, it, it was like you're you're being purified. It was almost like, you know, that I mean, that's what it was, and it was the great cleanser, and then you could be reformed or whatever, and then if you were good, then you went to heaven. And they even had in Zoroastrian, we're not going to get into a whole Zoroastrian whatever, but they had certain animals that were good and certain animals that were bad, like the otter is revered as a good animal. Turtles are inherently bad, so it's kind of weird. It's like, I like turtles, you know? Um, (laughs) But I mean, you know, in that religion, there were a lot of things that were really weird, and so... I think eventually, as, as as Christianity began to take hold, uh, and it spun off from Judaism, but it also had some Zoroastrian roots, and, and, and the heaven and hell thing, I think, was a part of that. And I think a lot of people get caught up in this, well, I'm going to do good because I don't want to go to hell. I'm going to do good because I want to go to heaven. And I think that the churches 
in the early days, which is another thing we touched on, um, I think that they clung to that, and I think that it became part of of the the monarchy. Um, the monarchists kind of used that. They like, you know what? I like Definitely. what's being said in the Pentateuch, and you know what that is. Um, you can explain to the audience. Um, and they used the code of Deuteronomy, and we'll get into that. I'll ex- we'll, we'll explain that, but they used it as a, as a, as a control tool because it was like, you know what? Definitely. Yeah, you do bad, and uh, you're going to go to a bad place called hell, and then if you do good, then you go to a good place called called heaven. So tithing to the church was most important, keeping the Sabbath. So everybody went to church to hear the word, and a lot of the world word was being filtered through the monarchy. And they were telling them, say this, because this is how it'll work. And then there was kind of a dualistic rule uh, between the priests and the monarchists. And so they were like, you do, you scratch our back, we scratch yours. You get money, you know, from the tithes and whatever. You give us our cut and these people behave. Of course, they lived in horrible conditions, especially, let me just take medieval England, for example. Um, it's not a place I'd want to live. I would, you know, I would not have want, I wouldn't want to live in medieval America either because they were doing all kinds of sacrifices and stuff like that. But what I'm talking about is like, that, you know, it just wasn't, a, it was a cruel, dark, rough place. And there wasn't much for you in this life. You, the average lifespan was yeah. 32 years old. So you're going to die young. So you had to have kids early and then die young and you had much, not much to look forward to. So, you know, being an outlaw was definitely, um, you know, um, a you know, it was an option. So it was like, you know, how do we control these people in this horrible time? Let's just, you know, tell them that God said, you do this, you do that, or you're in trouble, you know? And so. Well, exactly. That, that was the form of Christianity that the Roman empire said, Hmm, I think we can work with this uh, because it turns people into a population that's very easy to manipulate. And if you frame the religion as a religion of sort of fear and obedience, then essentially you've got uh, believers whose whole life is about compliance. And it's easy to play games with that, easy to manipulate that. The Roman Empire was very clever in the way it got its claws into Christianity so it could use it that way. And it did it a couple of ways. And one was through what you're talking about, Josh, through the doctrine of hell and putting people in fear of that, trading essentially in separation anxiety, which a lot of religions do. And it's often difficult to see it when you're in the middle of it. But separation anxiety is basically to come in with a message that says you're separated from God, and that's going to be terrible for you in the afterlife. You better claw your way back into his good books, and we'll show you how. So now that people are dependent on you, to tell them how and to keep them informed as to whether or not they're in God's good books. Well, the empire loved that. And the doctrine of hell was a big part of how they, uh, that was the big stick, really, that helped them to do that. But as you were saying earlier, Josh, when you go to the Gospels, Jesus didn't talk about hell. He talked about Gehenna. And Gehenna was just as you say, it was the rubbish tip. And As soon as you realize that, it's a translation question. As soon as you realize that, you realize that Jesus is warning people against self-destructive and destructive behaviors that will ruin your life and land you on the scrap heap of life full of remorse and regret, and you can't get back what you've lost. 
those are the warnings he's giving because he's actually wanting us to live better lives. And as soon as you reframe it that way, you realize, oh, my goodness, Jesus is actually helping people with his teaching. And then you go from there to what the uh, Roman imperial church was doing, and it's like a night and day difference. So there was that manipulation. The other thing that the empire did brilliantly um, in a rather cynical way was to put all the bishops of the early church in purple. Now, what that meant was they were given senatorial rank within the empire. And at first, a lot of believers would have said, hey, this is great. They're really respecting the church. All our leaders have been put in purple. Isn't that awesome? They're taking us seriously. What they'd actually done was anchor the church to the feudal order of the empire. So at the top of the tree is God and the emperor. Then underneath him, you've got his underlings. Somewhere in the middle, you've got the senators and the bishops. And then at the bottom, you've got the people. And all of a sudden, Christianity has become this feudal order, the very thing Jesus taught us not to do. And it's not hard to see that you cannot get to feudalism from Jesus's teaching. He says in the gospel, you know what the nations are like, you know what people are like, how there's the people at the bottom, those with authority, those with authority over them, and those with absolute authority at the top. It must not be so among you, he said. You you are all brothers and sisters. Call no one on earth your father or your leader. You have no leaders. You have no superiors. You are all peers. That's the teaching of Jesus in the gospel, and you cannot get from there to feudalism. You can only get there when the Roman Empire takes over and gets its claws into it, puts the bishops in purple, and it recreates feudalism with a religious veneer over the top. And to a large extent, Christianity has struggled to shake that off all through the ages, whether we call our superiors, you know, prelates or regional superintendents <laughs> or popes or archbishops or pastors or priests, whatever language we use, we have a tendency to reconstruct that pyramid of authority with someone at the top, some people, a few in the middle, and then the people at the bottom doing what they're told. That's exactly what Jesus said not to do. And to add to what you said and explain a little bit to what, what he means by the purple, it goes back to the Roman Empire. To take the purple was to be uh, the emperor. The emperor wore purple and his only the Praetorians, um, the Praetorian guards and like you said, the senators, they wore purple. The Praetorians were the protectors of the emperor. So if you That's took, right. if you took the, the purple, you were the top. You know, you were at the top of the heap. The Praetorians were the secret service, so to speak, for and, and they wore purple. They were the only proletariats that were allowed to wear it. Now, proletariats being like, I guess, um, the plebe, the the regular people, you know. And and you got that mil the militaristic purple, which was the Praetorians, and you had the senatorial purple, and then you had the emperor. Everybody else, you didn't wear that. And the re the average yeah, Roman soldier right. wore red. They wore a red cloak, and they and and then they had the breastplate. Um, but, but the people didn't, did, did not wear purple and purple was because it was, it was a valuable dye that was made. From, That's you know, right. Yeah. And so it was very expensive. So to have that was like, Ooh, you're somebody. And here's, here's what happened folks. And there were the, the, the churches split off. Now there's a lot of argument between the Christian, the Christian Catholic church and the Christian Orthodox church. Really and truly there were two Roman empires when the Roman empire expanded so far, I'm not going to get into a long history lesson, 
Um, but it became the Byzantine Empire, which they actually didn't call themselves the Byzantines at the time. It's something that we called them later, but it was called the Eastern Roman Empire. And the Eastern Roman That's Empire, right. which was very Greek, and, and they actually were um, uh, allies, close allies to the Western Roman Empire, which is the cat, where did the Catholics come from? And then the, when the Byzantines, they became the Orthodox Church, ultimately through Greek. It was a Greek Orthodoxy, which was spread all the way to Russia. Um, like Ivan the Terrible and Catherine the Great, they were all Orthodox uh, Christians. Um, they were not uh, against one another, but they didn't have the same beliefs, and they were kind of like, well, they're, well, I'm right. No, you're right. Well, you both came from the same place, but it, al- it always ended up in the same place, which was feudalism, like you said, tribalism, and everybody thought they were right, and there was there's an Orthodox Bible, and then there's a Catholic Bible, and then there's a King James Version Protestant Bible, there's a Schofield King James Version Protestant, and it just goes on and on and on, <laughs> and then it gets very confusing. And so then you're sitting here going like, I'm, I'm a kid, and I'm going to this Christian school, and I'm reading the Bible, and I'm not following it. I, I'm having a hard time with it, especially in the Old Testament. Um, and when you start going into like what we were talking about, the Pentateuch, do you want to exp- first of all, do you want to explain that real quick? What that is? Yes. Well, the 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 Hebrew canon, what we call the Old Testament, uh, evolved over a long period. It begins with the earliest stories, the stories of beginnings, Genesis one to eleven. Very possibly, they are the stories that belong to Abraham and Sarah, who are the progenitors of the of the Judeo Christian tradition, essentially brought with them from the Sumerian-based culture that they had lived in. And so we start with those stories of beginnings, and then at some point those are added to and the whole thing harmonized to create the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, and it exists in order to teach the law of Moses. And they're called the books of Moses. And then after that, some more writings were added, and then the whole thing edited together to create a single work again. It's called the Deuteronomistic History. And the reason that was done, because they wanted to tie all these stories together in a way that endorsed the monarchy and the priesthood and taught the Mosaic laws and showed everything to be built on them. That's the Deuteronomistic History. And then you've got the prophetic books, which get added onto that. And that process continues until. The 6th century BCE, there's a very broad agreement among Bible scholars that this is when the Old Testament took its final form, and the whole thing was edited together to create a single work. And at that point, one of the things that was done, and this is all done in plain sight, you can see all the joins and, and how it comes together, it's done very openly. When you get to that point, the holy name of God Yahweh, the name revealed to Moses, gets uh, pasted over all the stories from beginning to end because the editors who brought the whole thing together wanted to make the point this is all the story of God. And they wanted the whole thing to teach the key point that Judaism was offering to the world that there is only one God, the source of the cosmos and everything in it. And so they took that name and inserted it in the very earliest of stories. And that is where we get into some interesting territory because the way that was done makes clear to the alert reader today that we're not reading the original version of those stories. So when you see the name Yahweh, the holy name of God, 
showing up long before Moses, when the name was revealed, you know that someone after the time of Moses has retold an earlier story using the holy name of God. And as soon as you realize that, you do the um, source critical answer, which is, oh, what was the original version of that story? And that's where the Elohim narratives begin opening up. And that's really where you begin getting into questions of what are the entities in the Bible? And you get into the territory of paleo contact. And in your books, you have, you have two in particular. What, what are they called again? Scars of Eden. The Scars of Eden is the most recent one. And the first in this series is Escaping from Eden. Mm-hmm. And, and those books kind of, it, it kind of brings it together and explains to you uh, what, what uh, like, like you go from beginning to end, right? You kind of explain it, the Anunnaki, who they are. Yes, step by step, I, I show how I got from reading the Bible and translating the Bible to being confronted with the stories of the Anunnaki in the Sumerian, Babylonian, Akkadian, and Assyrian stories, the source narratives of the stories of beginnings in Genesis. And that's that's where the Anunnaki stories come from. Yeah. And, and it's funny, if you, if you go back in history and if you look at, at like the Hittites and then the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and then the Persians, it goes in order because each one of those civilizations was usurped by another one. And at one point, uh, the uh, Israelites were, were taken into captivity. The Babylonians had taken them into captivity. Um, they had been attacked over and over again. They were attacked and, and, and beaten down by the Assyrians. And then at one point, they were taken into captivity. The Babylonians had them, and then the Persians, um, under Cyrus, he had let them go. Okay, And a lot of them returned to Israel, and Israel was no more. There was only Judea in the south. There, were, there was only two that was left. That was left. It was in the south, and it was Judea. And, and, and actually, te- technically, Jesus was a Galilean, which was north. It was, I think, a little bit north. Of, uh, so he was not mm-hmm. accepted uh, as te- technically, he wasn't really accepted as being Jewish um, because he wasn't a Judean, for, per, you know, per se. They called him the Galilean. Um, and some people call him the Nazarene, but I mean, it, it just, it's the region and the town and whatever. And, but he was born in Bethlehem. Yes. And, yeah. And so he, he was kind of like, um, almost like an outsider in his own country. It would be like somebody from Oklahoma going to Texas. If, if there were two different, you know, if, if Oklahoma was really not really a part of, of Texas, like or it was no longer, we weren't the same, like if the country split up. And somebody yes. just north of the Red River came and said, I am one of you. And you're like, no, nah, we're a Texan. You're an Oklahoman. We're the same people, same blood, same everything. You're just from a different region. And that was used against him often. And there were all these different things, everything they could try, the Pharisees tried to, uh, to you know, twist and turn and all these mental gymnastics they did. And he called them out on it over and over and over again. And it was just constant because he was battling, he was fighting an uphill battle against a priesthood that had taken hold and was like, this is the quote unquote word of God, because we say it is. And there, there was a lot of confusion. And Jesus says, I didn't come to take away from the words of God, but to add to it. And I think that he did that. There were so many well, people. Well, it was more, it's a little bit more intriguing than that. Because yeah. he didn't say to add to it. He said to complete it. Complete it. Yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah, yeah. And that's actually a strangely ambiguous word. 
Because by complete, does he mean complete the period of its authority? Does he mean it that way? Or does he mean he's going to fulfill every commandment and then we're going to transcend it in some way? And that was the big question that the early church had to wrestle with. Which did he mean? And it was not immediately clear to a lot of his first hearers which he was saying. And that's why they, in fact, had to have, had to convene the uh, first council of the church in Jerusalem, which is recorded in Acts 15, it's presided over by Jesus' brother, to settle the question of, has the, the law and the prophets come to an end, and are we now in different territory? Or do people who become Christians need to become Jews as well? And do we need to glue all the Jewish writings on to the apostolic teachings to make a Christian Bible? Well, in Acts 15, they said, no, we're moving on. And then the church fathers had the debate all over again and reversed the decision. Yeah, and that was that was the Council of Nicaea. Is that what that is? Well, it was it was a number of it was a great long process. So it didn't happen in a single moment. And in fact, the the formal ratification of the canon of the Christian Bible was was much much later. In terms of listing the writings of the New Testament, that happened pretty quickly. And Christians were agreed from around about 120 of the common era what the letters were that they all recognized as apostolic letters, and that became the New Testament. And it was also pretty clear what the canon of the Hebrew Scriptures was. The question was what to do with them. Do we uh, glue them on to the apostolic writings to make a Bible, or do we say, thank you so much, it's been a great contribution for the Jewish people, but it's not fundamental to Christianity? And that's what the big debate was about. Yeah, because <clears throat> there, there were, like you said, there were several, because I think the Council of Nicaea was like 300, uh, 325. 325. So you're going like, okay, there, there was, a, <laughs> Christ had had, had been, been, uh, crucified 325 years prior to that. So there were all kinds of things that went on. First of all, Christianity had to take hold in the Roman Empire and how that happened was because it spread from Judea and it just it just went into uh, into the Roman Empire and it just went all up in, you know, everywhere and it spread. And I think that it was important that that uh, he had to have be, had he had to be crucified for that to happen. Um, I don't believe it would have had the same effect if Jesus would have just lived to be an old man and everything. I just don't think it would have had the same profound effect. Him uh, being crucified and then resurrected, that was important, and that became the cornerstone of our faith, which is one of the reasons why a lot of people reject the Gnostics, you know, in particular the one we were talking about earlier, because, you know, when you read that, you you start to go, okay, this is uh, not correct because it's saying here that he actually didn't die, um, and and that becomes the 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 you know like a part of of Islam. They do actually believe in Christ, but they don't believe that he actually died. They believe that he was there was there was uh, another that was uh, in his place, and so there's a real kind of a weird uh, like like there's a splitting there. That and and so being the cornerstone of our faith that Christ actually was crucified and then was resurrected, um, you know, if if you as a Christian, if you go, if you uh, how do you say it, like if you go, for, you veer off from that, 
and then that becomes Islam <laughs> because that's what they believe. They do believe in the second coming too, um, but it gets well, kind of messy. It it's it's not that neat and tidy at the beginning of Christianity. How those beliefs all fit together. If you read Paul, then yes, absolutely. He presents the traditional understanding of the resurrection as the linchpin of Jesus's credibility, and he argues that in in one Corinthians fifteen. And if you read um, Matthew, Luke, and John, they spell that story out. Jesus was alive on both sides of the cross, and we call that the resurrection. Um, however. You don't just have to go to Gnostic texts to see another story being told. If you go to the original form of the Gospel of Mark, there is no resurrection in it. Most scholars would argue that of the canonical Gospels, Mark is the earliest. Why on earth wouldn't he mention the resurrection? And then there's another source as well, and it's a source that the Gospels of Matthew and Luke both quote from when they want to put together their account of the teachings of Jesus. Now, there's a bit of debate around this, um, but I would be uh, one of those scholars who says that Luke and Matthew both drew on a set of written sayings, sayings of Jesus, in another document, which we call Q, which just means we don't know what the source is. It's, it's a word for source. They're drawing on the source. Well, Q doesn't mention the resurrection or, or, or the crucifixion. So it's not the linchpin there. And then, as you say, when you go to Gnostic texts, it's not the linchpin there. And I think it's worth pausing and saying that at the beginning, Christianity was a great kaleidoscope of views and what we think of as the story was only part of the original story. There was far more going on in the first couple of hundred years of Christianity, and there were far more stories being told. We're very familiar with the one that got favored by Rome and is still the story we tell in every part of the church around the world. But it was a kaleidoscope of views in the beginning. And I think we have to, I don't know if that embarrasses people, but we have to acknowledge that was the case. That's why there were councils. That's why there were all these debates, sometimes very, very violent, to decide which Christians were right and which Christians were wrong. And I think Constantine just decided that he, um, this is what's right. This is what's going to happen. Well, actually, the the worse even than Constantine, and it, he it's a horror story, really. <laughs> when you get into what he did, yeah, <laughs> with his because he didn't, he he did a lot to change what Christianity was in order to accommodate it to his political agenda. agenda. Mm -hmm. Talk, talked a bit about that, but the guy who really took over and put the emperor at the top of the tree for Christianity was Theodosius because he's the guy who in 381 of the common era waded into one of these church councils where the church is having this rabid debate over some, what would now seem a fine theological point, but it was very important at the time. And he thought, I can't have this. The church is supposed to be 
the Department of Religion for the Empire. It's supposed to be a unifying thing for the empire around the world. We can't have it like this with all this debate. So I'm just going to settle the debate. And so with a stroke of the imperial pen, he said, okay, we've heard the debates. This is the conclusion. I am endorsing it. Here's the imperial stamp. And the moment he did that, he made very clear now that the emperor is the arbiter of fact from fiction. He's the one who says what's true and what is fake news. And he's doing it in the name of God and in the name of Jesus. He trumps all the bishops and archbishops and prelates. And from that moment on, it's very clear that Christianity is a feudal order. There's no distinction between a Christian and a good citizen. And if you believe one of these other kaleidoscopic views from the beginning, then, well, potentially you're an enemy of the state because you're sowing disunity into the Department of Religion of the Empire. And that's how it played out. And it was a very ugly, violent period, which is why such desperate measures were taken in terms of burying these other texts in the desert so they wouldn't all be burned. That's where it led. Yeah. And then they were uncovered. And then you get a whole, like you said, there's this whole range of books and and, because there was a whole kaleidoscope of things going on, a lot of confusion and and who was right and who was wrong. Uh, And you have different codexes in the Nag Hammadi uh, text. You have uh, the Apocryphon of James, which was also known as the secret book. Um, And then you had the Apocryphon of the, the, the Apocryphon of John, which is another interesting book, the gospel of Thomas, um, which is kind of weird too. That there's another one there. Like that's, (laughs) that one kind of shows Jesus in like a more human light. Um, Yes. It's, it's a really interesting document, Thomas, the sayings of the living Jesus. So that's, that's the gospel where there's no, uh, crucifixion and resurrection mentioned at all. And it's just a sequence of sayings. And it's a really curious title, the sayings of the living Jesus. So it might just be distinguishing from the bigger story and saying, well, this is this is while he was you know, in the flesh, alive on, on earth with us. Or it could have had the sense of uh, these are the sayings of the real life Jesus. And in fact, when you read the teachings, it's clear they're very, they're not polished like they are in the canonical Gospels. They're very raw, and most scholars would agree these are the earliest representations of Jesus' teaching. They've not been finessed. They've been left there in the state in which people remembered, and if that perplexes the reader, well, then you accept that. You let it perplex you, and you think it through. And again, it's one of the clues that it's a slightly different kind of literature to when you read the very straightforward you know, it's thus and so of the canon- canonical texts. One of the stories intrigues me, that intrigued me was that Jesus was kind of like, um, and, and, and I really believe that this could be the case. Like when he was a child, I don't think he was like, like I am the chosen one, you know, like I think he knew, like he knew right from wrong and he had a, a sense of enlightenment. But he also like, there's a story of him like pushing another boy off of a roof. Um, that yes. is, is very odd because you're reading it and yeah, you're going that's like, right. what? And then he, he's like, well, oh, it's okay. You know, I can, you know, he's okay. I can heal him. You know, uh, it's like he I'll had raise this. raise him up again. Yeah, he raised yeah. him up. So then, and then it kind of goes to Lazarus, like how, you know, it, when it, you later on, you see this again with Lazarus, like he kind of just tarries and takes his time. 
And everybody's like, Jesus, come. Lazarus is dying. What are you doing? Why are you doing? He's like, just taking his time. Then when he gets there, you know, you see a very human side to him. You know, Mary is there and, and, and Martha, isn't it Martha? Um, and, yes. and they're very sad and, and, and they are, uh, they're like, you know, Lazarus is dead, you know, and he, he weeps with them like a human would weep and feel sorrow. But then he says, okay, now I'm going to just bring him back from the dead. And he does. I mean, he calls him back to life. And so it's like, there's a lot of confusion there. It's like, is Jesus, uh, does, is he aware that he's able to do this or was it like, and th- this is just a question I personally had when I read the story, I was like, okay, was he aware that, okay, because I did this as a child, I can bring this person back if I have to. Was he like crying about it? And then he said, you know what? I'm just going to do my best and I'm going to try and bring this guy back. And he did. Or was he crying for the benefit of man? And then then he said, okay, now I will show you that this, and he brought him back. It's it's so weird. It's really, really bizarre, like that he took the time to... Well, yeah, just taking the, the Mary, Martha, and Lazarus story, um, according to the story, if if we take that as a, a bit of the history that's in the Gospels, and I think we should always ask, is it a bit of the history of the Gospels, or is it a story told in the Gospels? It's not always crystal clear which, but if we take it as this, this is what happened, this is what Jesus did, these were people he loved. This is where Jesus went to feel at home. One time Jesus said, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. But he would go and stay with those guys when he wanted to feel at home. And he loved them, and they loved him. And to be standing with Mary and Martha, who were breaking their hearts over their brother, is not difficult to imagine him bursting into tears himself. Because you can't can't be a human being with empathy and not be moved by other people's grief. So that's not hard to understand. But the intriguing thing is, why did he why did he wait? Yeah. When yeah, it, just... when he got the message saying your friend Lazarus your friend Lazarus is gravely ill and Jesus said, "Oh, I'll I'll go in a couple of days." Uh what what does that mean? At what point is Jesus getting a notion of how this is going to play out and how does he know? Is he getting communication from the Holy Spirit? Is it precognition that he has? And then the story of Lazarus is even more intriguing because at the end of John's Gospel, um, there's a hint that Lazarus may be more central to that Gospel than we thought. Because there's a little conversation about there being a disciple who Jesus loved and the rumor was going around that that disciple wouldn't die. Well, why would there be a rumor about a disciple like that? Why would you think one of the disciples wouldn't die? Well, if it already died, if it already been resurrected, then you might think, oh, he's already raised, which is, of course, how people understood Jesus when they saw him on the other side of the cross. So then you have to ask, oh, was Jesus resurrected in the same way that Lazarus was? Because Lazarus died of old age at some point, despite the rumors. <laughs> or is it yet another kind? How do these stories go together? Resurrection of Jesus, unique, model for us. Lazarus' resurrection, not a model for us. Resurrection of the boy who he pushed off the roof, did it even happen? Because frankly, when I first read that story, 
I immediately thought, oh, I can see why this one didn't make it into the canon. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly what <laughs> I thought too. I was like, okay, that's that's, that's right. Yeah, because it, it made him seem like he was kind of uh, like a like not a like not yeah. a good kid, like a brat. I not don't know. Nice, it was weird. Not a know? nice guy. But yeah. it now I would go back and say, all right, what is that story really about? Why is it there? Because you take it at face value, it's not going to endear you to Jesus. Is there something else going on in that story? So every single story you approach, you have to ask that. What What am I reading? Why was this written? What kind of literature is it? Yeah. One of the things, too, I, I, and, and we're talking a lot about the Gospels, but I think one of the biggest, biggest confusions for me was the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, you had... And it and it does have a lot to do with Christ and my belief and and I just really have a hard time wrapping my mind around the Old Testament God as opposed to the New Testament God. And I tell people all the time, I'm really big on the New Testament. I'm not really into the Old Testament. I understand that there are a lot of cool stories and things that happen in the Old Testament, um, but I do believe that first of all, I think it's out of sequence. I, I, and then people just will argue with me all day, but I tell them that I believe the book of Job predates the Genesis. And I've, I've thought that for a long time. Yeah, a, a lot of scholars believe that. Yeah. And, and I actually came to that conclusion, like a lot of my conclusions, I just came to my own because I was reading into these and I was going like, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. And then when you, okay, one of the really confusing things is that Abraham, he wasn't uh, a, a Hebrew. Like it's it, people don't understand that. Like they don't understand. They think that there was this that that they were all Hebrews and Israelites, and that Noah was an Israelite. Noah was not an Israelite. Noah no. was not a Hebrew. The word Hebrew is Hebron, which is means like outsider, Egyptian. Um, and that's that, that's what the Hebrews were. So when you get into the story of the Exodus, which I I'm one of those people that believes that you know it may or may not have happened. There's really no archaeological proof of it. And I do believe that it is kind of just a story that's told as the beginning of of the, you know, but it's not really the beginning because, yeah. you know, by the time you get to Moses, there's been this whole lineage. I mean, you had Abraham mm. and you had Isaac and then you had Jacob. Now, Jacob is really confusing to me because Jacob, you know, became Israel, which means he who wrestles with God um, because of the story about him wrestling with God and and then his hip was dislocated, whatever you get, and then it gets really weird because Jacob, he was deceitful. Like he deceived his, his dad, Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. He deceived him to get the uh, blessing. So then Esau comes back, you know, from his hunt or whatever, and he goes into the tent and the the scripture makes clear that Isaac favored Esau over Jacob. Um, and, but Jacob and his mother, you know, they got together and they, you know, they they made a, a deal to try to make it to where um, he they they covered him, I believe, in in fur, goat fur, or whatever, to try to deceive uh, his dad. And I'm thinking, how could this be a good thing? How could this be a good guy? And how could God look favorably upon this guy because he's being deceitful and he's very deceitful? And and I just I couldn't wrap my mind around. It. But when I would question that, well, it was castigation. It was like, why are you questioning the word of God? Why are you questioning this and that? You're not supposed to question it. Just, well, you know. yeah, you're questioning it to understand it, aren't you? Yeah, I was trying to understand, and I kept asking Absolutely. that question. And I got I got uh, corporal punishment, which happened quite frequently in the, the <sighs> oh, Christian goodness. church. I was a uh, Christian school I went to. I got spanked quite a bit. 
for questioning multiple things. And, and they began to tell me that I wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit and I was, I was a, a bad kid and they were constantly uh, spanking me. And I, and I wasn't acting out. I wasn't doing anything but asking questions. And then I was told that, that – I and then I said something really bad and I got slapped because I said that the earth isn't 5,000 years old. I, I, because I didn't believe it. I, didn't, I really didn't believe it. I read a book about dinosaurs and I kind of thought this is probably correct. And, I, and so I said something in, in out of turn. I had a teacher. She was very, very uh, quick to, to smack you. Um, smack me. And of course it's private school. There's no repercussions. You know, it's like, if you don't like it, take your kid out, you know? So, so Josh, just clarify me. You're, you're telling me that you didn't live in medieval America. <laughs> no, I didn't. Yeah, no. <laughs> it um, sounded at that school. That is so sad. Yeah. And why on earth would teachers have to defend truth by beating a child? Mm -hmm. I mean, that is absurd. You only have to do that if what you are saying doesn't make sense or you can't defend it. If you can only get someone to agree with you through violence, well, that ought to be a big clue that something is off. And you went through a really interesting swathe of biblical history there because, first of all, you rightly point out that the story of the Hebrews really begins with the Exodus. Um, and the Hebrew slaves in Egypt, whom Moses rescues, and they, they become a nation. And then prior to that, you've got some really ancient stories. And looking, and of course, they all exist before the law. So the idea of, you know, good guy, bad guy, cheat, trickster, there's no framework you are measuring it against at that point, because the law isn't there. So that's, that's just the way the story plays out in the Bible. But You've got some really interesting people. So you've got um, Abraham and Sarah. Abraham is called the father of many nations. I think that's actually told out of order as well, like you were saying about Job being the earliest book. If you go to India, you will hear the stories not of Abraham and Sarah, but of Brahma and Saraswati. Same names. And who were they? Uh, according to the traditions there, Brahma is the father of the many nations. He's the father of all the peoples. So he, he's almost like an Adam figure. So that now come back to the Bible and read where it says Abraham means the father of many nations or the many nations, and you realize that's a far more significant statement than ever you realized. And those stories of beginnings they are individual stories, and when you stand them by themselves and look at them, there is a far greater depth and reservoir of information there than ever you might have imagined. And you're right to point out about Noah. It's interesting. When Christianity came along, Christianity was turning around and saying to Judaism that it's perfectly possible to be in God's books without being Jewish, and without following the law. And Christians would say, look at Noah. He wasn't Jewish. He didn't have the law. He was in God's good books. And Judaism really struggled to respond to that point. And I didn't really realize this myself until I went to a rabbinic school in London as part of my theological training. And these Jewish theologians welcomed us as guests from the Christian Theological College. And they said, you should be more confident 
in how you interpret the Hebrew scriptures because you have it right where we had it wrong in many points. And Noah is one of those points. Melchizedek is another of those points. Here's someone, not a Jew, not part of the family of Abraham, and yet somehow he's Abraham's senior is the way the story really plays out. How's he in a relationship with God? Uh, And then you can read those and jump forward to the people you mentioned before, the three wise men, and it's it's as clear as day. These are people from totally outside of the Judeo-Christian story. They're from a different culture, a different country, a different religion, but they have come because they're recognizing something is happening with the birth of Jesus. That's the whole significance of them turning up. So you're really missing how important it is by saying, well, they were obviously Christians if they're bringing Jesus gifts on Christmas Day sort of thing, uh, or whenever it was two years later. So it's a far more colorful story with far more going on, and there are connections between what is there in the Bible and ancestral narratives all around the world, not just in India. You can go to Africa, Mesoamerica, go to ancient Greece, to Europe, the Norse countries, the Celtic countries, Aboriginal Australia. Native America, and you will hear stories being told in those narratives that run in parallel with many of the stories from out of the Hebrew canon. But they they really only run in parallel once you address the translation questions and realize that you've got a greater diversity of stories in the Bible than you fully realized. That's it for tonight, folks. Be sure and tune in next Friday as we do part two with Paul Wallace, uh, me and Paul Wallace are going to continue talking about Bible theology and mythology. Thank you for tuning in tonight. And don't forget, we have a Tuesday live stream that we do every Tuesday. We go anywhere from two and a half to four hours, uh, just telling stories, bringing people on the show, talking and previewing guests that are going to be doing sets with me. And uh, the sets we do are like the one I'm doing with Paul Wallace here um, and we do shows and we do all kinds of stuff. Now, don't forget about the giveaways. We're going to do a drop an official link. Go join the Paranormal Roundtable group page. Like I said, we will drop the link to this show and you will, we will be giving away a free autographed book. It happens every show, Tuesdays and Fridays. Every show we do a giveaway. Uh, Halloween, we gave away a ton of stuff. And if you're a Patreon uh, subscriber, member. Uh, be sure and hit me up if you've been a Patreon member for three months or longer. Uh, you have a free, uh, you have some free gifts coming from me. So just hit me up on Messenger on Facebook if you want to be my friend. Make sure you let me know that uh, you are a uh, PRT listener, and that uh, we can be friends. Y'all have a good night, have a good weekend, and be safe. <laughs>